Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Warning before we start, this episode deals with allegations of child abuse, sexual abuse, accusers being disbelieved, counter allegations of tainted memory, collusion. If any of that is triggering for you, please be advised. Okay, here's the gist of it. Apologies if you've heard this part before. We'll get to the new stuff in a minute. Laura Robinson is an established journalist. She's written books, published investigative pieces with major newspapers, won awards. Her focus is on abuse in sport. She gets a tip about John Furlong. Furlong also has an impressive CV. He ran the Vancouver Olympics. He sits on various boards. He was named to the Order of Canada. He wrote a book about himself. Robinson finds out that Furlong has a murky past. He came to Canada from Ireland years before he wrote that he did. He taught phys ed at a missionary school for Aboriginal kids in the rural community of Burns Lake, British Columbia. During that part of his life, he got married, and all of that was left out of his memoir. Even his co-author knew nothing about it. Robinson digs into it. She interviews seven of his former students over the phone. Their memories, she says, are clear. They tell her that Furlong, the missionary school teacher, was a racist, violent bully. Robinson sends a flyer to Burns Lake, asking if anyone else has stories of abuse at Furlong's hands. She flies in and she collects stories. 
Ultimately, she says she communicated with over 45 witnesses, many of whom sought her out. People who say that Furlong abused them and people who say that they saw Furlong abusing others. Eight of them signed sworn affidavits. These are on-the-record sources who are signing legal documents. If they lie, they could be held liable. They do it anyway. Laura Robinson goes to John Furlong for comment, and through his lawyer, he denies everything, gives no details. Robinson shops the story around. CBC says no. Toronto Star says yes, then they say no. Eventually, the story is published in the Georgia Strait, the alternative newspaper in Vancouver. But before they run the story, the Strait warns Robinson. Their libel insurance will not cover her. If John Furlong sues, she will be personally liable. She could lose everything. She does it anyhow. One of the alleged victims who signed an affidavit, a woman named Beverly Abraham, says that Furlong went beyond physical abuse. She claims that he sexually abused her. That gets reported too, by Robinson and by others. The shit hits the fan. Furlong holds a press conference and releases a statement, and again, he denies everything. But he doesn't attack his accusers. He attacks Laura Robinson. More on that later. Furlong sues the Georgia Strait and Laura Robinson for libel and defamation of character. Then he drops his suit against the Strait and just goes after Laura Robinson, singles her out. The RCMP investigate the Beverly Abraham sexual abuse allegation, but they do not pursue it. Beverly Abraham launches a civil suit against Furlong, as do two others who accuse Furlong of abusing them as children. These two others were not Laura Robinson's sources in her investigation. Over time, these suits are all dropped or dismissed. Abraham says that the whole process was too stressful. One of the other accusers does not show up to court. And the third is found to have not even been enrolled in the school where Furlong taught. The media goes to town on that one. Nobody mentions that Indigenous kids were routinely bused from one missionary school to the next back in those days. Nobody mentions that there are witnesses who place the accuser and Furlong together. Once the civil suits are all gone, Furlong abandons his libel suit against Robinson, says he's been vindicated, and he just wants to get on with his life. Not so fast, says Laura Robinson. What about the things you said about me? By this point, she has already launched a countersuit against him, also for libel and defamation. She's suing him for a handful of statements he's made about her. He said that she was a reckless journalist who showed a shocking lack of diligence. He said that she seemed like she was on a personal vendetta against him. And guys, and this is just me talking now, this is just my opinion. In my opinion, I don't see the legal problem with him saying those two things. He thinks that she's a lousy journalist. He feels like she's on a personal vendetta. Look, it's a free country. We have free expression. And he's talking about his opinions, his feelings. How could that be against the law? But the next things he says are something else. He says it feels like she's on a personal vendetta against him and that the first time he was approached about the allegations, he was told that they could be made to go away for money. If you heard that like I heard it, then you heard John Furlong accuse Laura Robinson of trying to extort him. That's how the RCMP heard it, too. They called up Furlong and said, what's this you're saying about Robinson trying to blackmail you? Furlong sets the cops straight, says that, no, 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 this extortion attempt, it wasn't from Robinson at all. But he doesn't correct it in public, doesn't correct it to anyone else who got that idea. In fact, he leaves the statement up on his website. What else? Furlong says that Robinson herself called up the RCMP to report him for sexually abusing Beverly Abraham, except that that never happened. 
As the saying goes, my right to swing my fist around ends where your nose begins, and my right to free expression ends when I use it to falsely accuse you of doing awful things. And that's why I was pretty sure that Laura Robinson would win her libel suit against John Furlong. But she lost. Badly. And the verdict matters. It matters for the media and the way we report on abuse allegations or don't report on them. And it matters for people who say that they are the victims of abuse. Furlong versus Robinson, Robinson versus Furlong, this was a national news story. The impact on journalism has already been felt. The verdict dropped almost three weeks ago, and you haven't read anything about it in the press so far. There has not been a word of analysis of this ruling. We're going to talk about it today. William McDowell is a partner with Lensner Slate, law firm here in Toronto. He's one of Canada's leading practitioners of libel and media law. He was Canada's associate deputy minister of justice. Later, he was the chief justice of Ontario to mediate issues arising from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission inquiry into Aboriginal residential schools. William McDowell has taught trial advocacy at Queen's University and Osgoode Hall Law School, and he will join me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Alex Eastley, Robin Wass, Jeff, Ellen Roseman, Lisa D'Agostino, Peter McKinnon, Cheryl Case, Carlos, Amanda Hopkins, and Tim Riberick. Tim, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I get worried that as media venues get gobbled up by multinational corporations, they will stop presenting news that is unfavorable to their overlords. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. 
This episode is also brought to you by CJFE. Canadian Journalists for Free Expression is such an incredible small organization. They do not let that stop them from doing major things. They have launched a challenge, a charter rights challenge against Bill C-51. And I asked Tom Hennifer, who runs CJFE, why Bill C-51 is a free expression issue. Bill C-51 as a whole presents a massive chill on free expression. So you can just throw someone on the no-fly list. It's a secret process. There's basically no way to appeal it. Or you're a journalist who works in national security and you're quoting a terrorist. That's illegal. Guys, I volunteer for CJFE. I am a member. You should become one, too. Go to cjfe.org, click Become a Member, and find out about the perks and pub nights with journalists in the annual review, all of which you will get when you join me and become a member. Membership is reduced for listeners of this podcast. Go to cjfe.org right now. Do it. One quick note, the ruling that William McDowell and I will be discussing in detail is available for you to read in full on our website. You go to canadalandshow.com, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 102. We will link to the full PDF of the judge's ruling. William, would you agree that this was a decisive victory for John Furlong? Yes, an absolute victory for John Furlong. So we know that John Furlong did say things that are not true about Laura Robinson. The judge accepts that. And yet Laura Robinson lost the case. Why? Well, there is a notion of qualified privilege and and the right to self-defense. And there's an old English case where the House of Lords said, if you were attacked by a prize fighter, you are not bound to adhere to the Queensberry rules in your defense. So in other words, you can come out swinging when someone comes out swinging against you. That's what he did. I mean, we can get into this, but she said that she had gotten a tip that he had left big details of his past out of his uh, memoir. This caused her to investigate. She found the eight individuals who made these statements. And Furlong said uh, that he thought that she hadn't exercised due diligence, that it felt like a vendetta, and that she had filed a complaint with the RCMP. On that last one, if you actually look at the evidence at trial, what the trial judge says is, in fact, whoever filed it, the, the victim had filed it, or the supposed victim, I think we have to be careful to say, had made the allegations to the local RCMP. But uh, Laura Robinson was then very involved with the RCMP. And first of all, she had pressed the complainant to go to the RCMP because ideally she wanted to report the fact that that the complainant had gone to the RCMP at the time of the London Olympics. She had followed up with the officer. The officer had said, I don't think this person's credible. She's all over the map in terms of times and dates and individuals. Laura Robinson said, well, she wasn't that way with me. So she wasn't a mere bystander to the laying of the complaint. She was very much an advocate with the RCMP, I think it's fair to say, based on the findings of the trial judge. I get why Furlong was able to successfully argue, no, 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 no. She wasn't just asking Beverly Abraham, have you complained to the RCMP yet? She was encouraging her to go. Laura Robinson says, no, I wasn't. I was just trying to figure out if she'd done it yet. And I could see the judge getting there. No, 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 you were encouraging her. But encouraging her to do that is very different than doing it yourself. Well, it is, although it's a bit unusual, in my view anyway, for a, for a journalist to be saying, have you gone to the police yet? Because, you know, I, I really want to get this uh, into my article. Well, you bring up this uh, qualified privilege. Judge Wedge ruled that because of the seriousness of the sexual abuse allegation that Beverly Abraham went to the RCMP with, that was later disseminated by Laura Robinson, that she reported on that charge. Yes. Because of the seriousness of the allegation... It entitled Mr. Furlong 
to be neither bland nor accurate in his response. That's right. So it doesn't matter if he's telling the truth when he says that Laura Robinson went to the cops. It doesn't matter. The qualified privilege, this is quoting, the qualified privilege Mr. Furlong invokes does not require proof of the truth of his statements. That's right. I mean, that, that's been the law for a long time. For example, there's a f- famous Canadian case where someone says in relation to the Ottawa Civic Centre, you better be careful because this building is about to fall down and implicitly it's the fault of the engineers who are building the building. And the engineers write back and they say, well, he's just saying that because we fired him and he, he's just doing this as a means of getting paid, Yeah, which wasn't true. But, but the court said if you're under attack, you're entitled to fight back, provided that it's proportionate to the occasion. And that's very difficult to figure out what that means. But also provided that what you're saying is relevant. So when Furlong is saying, I think that she hasn't been duly diligent, um, this feels like a personal vendetta, she's been involved with the RCMP in getting these charges laid, he can be wrong about some of that. But he didn't say she was involved with the RCMP. Like, he said something that the, that the judge seems to be saying, it's okay that he was lying. Well, I think, you know, lying is maybe not the best way of describing it. And the same prize fighter quote that I gave you from the House of Lords, the House of Lords says, the law doesn't concern itself with such niceties. You know, it's very much analogous to self-defense in, in the physical sense that if you're defending yourself because someone's trying to beat you up, you don't have to measure your force precisely. You just have to use force that's proportionate. You can't shoot someone who's trying to punch you. It's the same idea. Yeah. You know, he can be wrong provided that he's not absolutely outlandish in what he's saying. But what's crazy to me as a journalist is I know that we can be wrong in journalism. And there's uh, one of the, the uh, examples for qualified privilege that's come up to me is that, you know, often journalists will invoke qual- qualified yes. privilege. One classic example that I came across was if you think that your neighbor is beating his wife, you can go to the cops and say, I think my neighbor's beating his wife. And of right. course, libel doesn't just pertain to publishing. You know, that statement itself to the cops, the guy might sue me for libel for going to the cops and saying that he was beating his wife. Right. But I could later invoke qualified privilege and say, yeah, I had it wrong. You weren't beating your wife, but it was in the public interest. I thought you were. Even though I was wrong, I thought I was right. And qualified privilege gives me the privilege to get that wrong because the public has, has an interest in people reporting when another guy is beating his wife. Right, right. The idea is that I have a, some kind of duty, a legal duty, a moral duty, a social duty to report this to the police. The police have a corresponding interest in receiving the information. Right. That's what an occasion of qualified privilege is. So that is a classic instance that journalists have used. And I can imagine Laura Robinson, you know, it, it had John Furlong not dropped his libel case against her, she might have invoked that to say, look, you're saying that uh, you didn't beat these kids, mm-hmm. but we don't report that he did it when you're reporting on allegations of abuse. You're saying, I have extensively investigated this and I have reason to believe there are credible allegations of a serious thing here mm-hmm. and I'm the reporter. So I invoke qualified privilege to protect me. Are you aware of any other case where it gets flipped like this, where somebody is accused in the press of serious allegations, they attack the journalist, which is pretty common, you shoot the messenger, and then successfully invoking qualified privilege in order to say things that we know now, we know that that's not true. She didn't go to the RCMP, and he, he was allowed to say that, thing, that inaccurate statement because he was fighting back and he was, he was protected by qualified privilege. Is that a precedent, or has that ever happened before? Well, I can't think of another example where it's happened before, but here's the reason. The extraordinary thing about this is that the allegations of sexual abuse and physical abuse are made and all kinds of things happen. The RCMP investigate, Mr. Furlong sues, 
Mr. Furlong uh, is sued by the a number of the of the individuals from Burns Lake, the Aboriginal people. But then all of that goes away. All of that goes away. But extraordinarily, in my experience, the reporter then sues the person she was reporting on. And I and that is something that I, quite frankly, in 25 years of doing libel law, I've never seen before. I've seen something similar in a very similar case with the Bill Cosby allegations because the uh, allegations are of rapes that uh, allegedly occurred so long ago. Right. And there's really no chance of some of those women being able to prove them in a court of law. But they made the allegations anyhow through the press. And then Cosby responds by calling them liars. The only recourse they had was to sue him for defamation, for calling them liars. Right. And he is very similarly invoking, well, I have a right to self-defense. Right. I'm just looking at the playbook going forward. When you are accused of serious things in the press, Mm -hmm. and often I think it will be for things like physical and sexual abuse that happened a long time ago because those are things that, you know, they find their way to the press because the courts don't do a good job, arguably, with those cases. Is it now a sound strategy in Canada based on this case to attack the journalist? Uh, That wouldn't be my first advice to someone to do that. On the other hand, I I, I think that it isn't unusual where there are allegations being made and the allegations are problematic for someone to say, if you were doing your job, you wouldn't say this, which is fundamentally what he said. I mean, frankly, I don't think the distinction between Robinson went, Ms. Robinson went to the RCMP and made the allegations herself as opposed to being an enthusiast uh, for the allegations with the RCMP. I don't think that distinction's all that important, if I'm being really honest. Oh, it's hugely, in journalism, it's hugely important. Who's going to hire her? What editor would hire her if you think that she's going and making the news? Well, but but what editor? I mean, if that's right, and I don't know whether that's right or not, you'd know better than I would, but an editor would, would be troubled, they would have thought, but what she actually did with the RCMP. You know, she should simply be asking the RCMP, what's the status of your investigation? The RCMP would say, uh, well, it's ongoing or whatever. Do you have information to share with us, Ms. Robinson? Yes, I do. Here's my information. But what, what she's reported by the trial judge to have done goes well beyond that. In what? In saying that you didn't find her to be credible, but I did? But I did. And how is it that you're not finding her to be credible? That's you know, here's a my separate matter. For putting Laura Robinson on trial as a journalist, which happens in this ruling extensively, though well, this is actually a judgment about John Furlong's statements. Well, but how can she not be on trial, given, given the arc of the story, if I can put it that way? You know, I really wonder, when I look at all this, I really wonder whether she had enough distance from the story. And that's me speaking as a lawyer, not as a journalist. From, sure. Let's talk about the but, but we, we can talk about Laura Robinson's journalism. I think that, that is very much germane to this ruling. So we can get into that. But, but, but let's, like, am I wrong in thinking that this is a, like a pretty meaningful decision for journalism in Canada? Well, it could be, except that, again, it's extraordinary that a, that a journalist would sue somebody and put... Uh, her methods on trial, right? Which is effectively what happens if you yeah. sue, if you sue someone who has said uh, you weren't duly diligent. Well, the court's going to say, well, were you duly duly diligent? And look very closely at that. So I think that's not likely to happen again. But to me, what comes off the page when you read this judgment is that you have to be very careful when investigating delicate types of allegations like this. You can't. Uh, wittingly or unwittingly be in the situation where where people have colluded and have together come up with stories, which is one of the things that really troubles the trial judge. Yeah, I, I know it does. And just to follow that logic through, that idea of collusion between the sources, yeah. 
if you feel that there is a possibility of collusion, you have to consider it plausible that not just eight, the eight sources that Laura Robinson got signed sworn affidavits from, but 45, which is the number of people who say that they witnessed John Furlong abusing either them or somebody else, that 45 people have got together to collude to fabricate a story of this awful physical abuser, and it's not true. And I, I, I have to leave an open mind for everything, but I'm not aware of any other case ever where that was found to be the case. Well, but if you look at the evidence that was under scrutiny at the, uh, at the trial, you had eight people who'd provided sworn um, affidavits. But the trial judge says the problem with that is that they were in a room of 35 people for at least an hour, and they had an opportunity to to come up with a with a common story, right? And he's and he's troubled by that. And These people live in Burns Lake, BC. No, I know, I know. They know each other. Okay. The other thing is that the principal of the school, who was an elderly nun, still alive and, and found to be very credible. Laura Robinson never tried to interview the, the nun, who was the one person from the school organization on the ground. You know, I mean, one of the ironies of this is if Mr. Furlong's case, uh, his libel case against Laura Robinson had run the distance. If he hadn't dropped it. If he hadn't dropped it. All of these questions would have been in focus. What gave me pause, as somebody who has, you know, frankly been a supporter of Laura Robinson's, was where Judge Wedge writes that Laura Robinson, shockingly, didn't even bother to interview the friends or family or peers of the eight people who made these accusations. Right. That's really startling, right? I mean, I had gone from thinking that Laura Robinson had done such due diligence. I mean, I published an investigation that had four sources, all of whom were off the record. I knew their names. Right. But she has this one where she's got eight sources, and they've signed sworn affidavits using their real names. So I I thought she had done an incredible job. And then you find out that that the judge says that she hasn't even spoken to their friends or family to verify the basic facts. That's pretty damning. Right. The thing is, Judge Wedge is wrong. You're sitting on the B.C. Court of Appeal all of a sudden, or what? I just happen to know from having interviewed Laura Robinson that she spoke to 45 people in a small community. There are tons of peers and family and friends who know each other. So the judge says she did not interview the friends or family or, or peers of the eight people. In fact, amongst those eight people, there are siblings. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I was alarmed just to find a, a false report. There's bad reporting in the ruling. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if there's a, the test would be if there's a palpable and overriding error in the facts, then that's something that the British Columbia Court of Appeal will have to sort out. But I would say this, that it looks to anyone reading the ruling that this was an attack by Laura Robinson on, on John Furlong. And it, and it wasn't just Laura Robinson passing on what other people had said. But the ruling is based on the evidence that was admitted by the judge. She had control over what got admitted and what didn't. And she didn't admit the eight signed affidavits. Those were not part of the evidence. So, if, I mean, it's, it's bizarre to me that these eight signed sworn affidavits upon which so much is based, whether they're credible, whether they colluded, whether they're even related to each other, mm-hmm. but they're not in the evidentiary record. So if they're not admitted as evidence and then the judge goes and makes a huge factual error that, that she didn't ask the relatives, I, 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 I don't know what to say. Like, I, I, I'm not – I'm trying to not sit here and advocate for anything but just to try to understand this and figure out what the relevance is. But 
I'm a little bit flabbergasted by some of the stuff that just being a journalist who's familiar with the case, going through the ruling, going, that's just not true. Well, but, I mean, there are, there are errors and there are errors. In fact, I've made one on the way through. I think I've called the judge he at various points when it's actually she. But not every error will result in the, in the judgment or the verdict being turned over. You know, I have a fair amount of experience dealing with the major newspapers in the country, uh, in some instances acting for them, in other instances acting against them. And with the CBC, the same thing, acting for the CBC, acting against the CBC. And journalistic methods in this country are pretty good. You know, I hate to say that. There are mistakes. There are things that need correction. There, sometimes there are things that... Uh, the extraordinary case that demands a lawsuit. But I think that uh, investigative journalists in this country don't uh, fall prey to the kind of over-involvement that the trial judge observes in this case. And it's easy for me to be hindsighted. I'm just reading the judgment. But, but you know, I know, for example, how you operate, and you do not operate in the same way. There's a detachment in the way that you do things. We did similar things. Gameshi's lawyers, they got their hands on an email that I sent to somebody, the CBC, saying, I am aware of certain very serious allegations made against Mr. Gameshi. Right. I want to know if they're true. I want to know if they're false. And Gameshi's lawyer said, that's libel. And if you do it again, we're going to sue you. Stop asking questions about the guy. So in their view, if I was being an aggressive reporter who had his mind made up about Gameshi. Right, but... You're right that there's a danger that someone could read this judgment and say, this really inhibits me because, you know, I'm just going out asking questions the way any investigative journalist does. But I think you have to look carefully at the facts of this case, that uh, she wrote to 180 different journalists. That's one of the findings. She wrote to the mayor of Vancouver. She wrote to the head of Vanock, the organizing committee. She wrote to the head of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Yeah. She wrote to Dick Pound, who I guess was the head of the Canadian Olympic Committee. All these people, and you have to ask with some of them, with some of them, not with all of them, but with some of them, was that a proper thing to do to advance the investigative journalism process? And I'm, I'm not sure that it was, and certainly the, the judgment reflects that. The recourse for that is a libel suit against her, right. right? And you don't abandon the case. You see it through and you sue her, and, and, and a court of law will, will determine whether or not she went too far. This is about whether John Furlong went too far. When John Furlong said that she filed a complaint against him with the RCMP, which she didn't, and when John Furlong said, and this part I thought that she would win on, after he says, it feels like she has a personal vendetta against me, and let me say, the first time I heard of these allegations, I was told they could be made to go away for money. Yeah. So, when I heard that, it seemed very clear to me that he was saying that Laura Robinson asked him for money in exchange for these things going away. Mm -hmm. I'm not the only person who drew that conclusion. The RCMP called up Furlong and said, what's this you're saying in the press about Laura Robinson extorting you for money? Right. And in, in fact, he was referring to somebody else. Yeah, referring to somebody else, to someone purportedly acting on behalf of a First Nations person who said, uh, you know, for $5,000, this can go away or something like that. Yeah. And he took that as a threat or as an attempt at extortion, spoke to the Vancouver police rather than the RCMP. Right. And so he says, well, look, I was uh, completely shell-shocked. I had just learned that I was being accused of all these things. Mm -hmm. I was defending myself. No, I didn't make the distinction. Somebody else approached me and asked right. me for money. But then after the fact, he had numerous occasions where he knew that people were drawing the conclusion that it was Laura Robinson. Right. And he didn't correct it. Now, in journalism, it's one thing to get something wrong. But if you correct it once you learn that it's wrong, 
Mm-hmm. He never said, no, 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 no everybody. I, I'm, I'm not saying Laura Robinson came to me for a payment. Well, that's part of the you don't have to abide by the Marquess of Queensbury rules. The, the rules that govern journalists are actually a little bit different than the rules that govern the ordinary person in these circumstances. Does a journalist exist as a separate legal category? I mean, I thought we just had freedom of expression and we all are are bound by libel and defamation law. Well, no. Journalists actually, their protection derives from the responsible communication defense. But that defense is not particular to journalists. I mean, in this day and age when everybody's got a blog or a Twitter account, there's nothing that Grant versus Torstar applies to everybody. Well, but it doesn't apply. it, it, It applies to anyone who's seeking to do something that amounts to journalism or is analogous to journalism. It doesn't govern this situation, right? This situation is governed by the old law of qualified privilege. What really gets me feeling squeamish about the ruling, and, and even in, in, in this conversation, the idea that there's one set of expression laws for journalists and one for everybody else. You know, the courts, what place do they have in saying who's a good reporter and who isn't? You know what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's a when the courts start to talk about that's not a report, that's an attack. Can you think of a, a serious news expose that is accusing somebody or, or reporting on accusations that are as serious as physical and sexual abuse that wouldn't be considered an attack by the person who's the subject of that story? Maybe not. But if you're a journalist, you do have to follow the Marquess of Queens, Queensbury rules in the sense that to make out the responsible communication defense – you have to have some method in what you're doing. You have to take responsible steps to verify the allegations. You, if the allegations aren't urgent, you have to take the time to try and get it right. You have to get the position of the person who's the subject of the allegations and get that on the record. You have to report that position fairly and so on. Here's what the Supreme Court said about qualified privilege. Where the occasion is shown to be privileged, the defendant is free to publish with impunity remarks which may be defamatory and untrue. Mm-hmm. about the plaintiff. So is there anything that Furlong could have said about Laura Robinson that would not be covered under qualified privilege? Was that a blank check? Once the judge said, okay, you're being attacked, you've got qualified privilege, could he have said anything in terms of a shoot the messenger, blame the accuser? Well, that's sure. He could have exceeded the, the privilege if he had said, and Laura Robinson cheats on her taxes because it's irrelevant to anything. Or if he had spoken about Laura Robinson's own personal, intimate life, uh, that would have exceeded the occasion. Um, If he had said that, you know, uh, she had used a fake name in the past or something, that probably would exceed the occasion. So there are things that you can do that that put you outside the parameters of the defense. And and then you call it malice, right? Right. And, and, and that would it would revoke the qualified privilege. So the judge said there can be no finding of malice unless it is clear that Mr. Furlong's desire to protect his interests played no significant part in his motivation to make the comment. This guy is a respect. He's called to the Order of Canada. He's sitting on numerous mm-hmm. boards. He's got a wonderful reputation. Right. And he's been accused of abusing Aboriginal kids 40 years ago. His entire reputation is on the line. Mm-hmm. What the hell could he possibly say that wouldn't be motivated by a desire to protect his interests and protect his reputation? Well, you're right that in, if you look at how serious the allegations are against him, he can say a whole lot of things and still be covered by the by the privilege. I mean, I've off the top of my head, offered some examples where I think he wouldn't be protected. But yeah, but yeah you're right. As long as he, as long as he sticks to, to how lousy a journalist she is, how much she's out to get him, and even making accusations about things that she didn't do, mm-hmm. and not all that happened here, it's all fair under qualified privilege. Well, that's right. I mean, but but to be fair about the extortion one, right? Take the extortion example. Yeah. If he had pl- clearly said. 
And Laura Robinson attempted to extort me for five grand. (laughs) That wouldn't have been protected. Another thing that's relevant to point out, though, is that the CBC said to her, you know, we're not going to use your report because we think at the CBC that you, Laura Robinson, are part of the story. And that, that's in the judgment as well. So the CBC certainly thought, you know, she's become part of the story. She isn't merely a journalist. Oh, think. for God's sake. So, and like, I thought that was interesting, though. I, I thought that was interesting because I can tell you, and look, this is all in a context where the CBC and every other news organization in the country, it, their investigative capabilities are getting cut to the bone. Mm-hmm. Okay? So a lot of investigative reporting is getting outsourced to freelancers. Yeah. who at great personal risk, when you talk about Laura Robinson, who did something that I wouldn't do in that she knew that she didn't have libel protection. She didn't have insurance from the Georgia Strait, and she went ahead with this anyhow. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's cost her a fortune. So we got a situation now where serious things would not go reported if not for freelancers. And so it, you'll forgive me if I'm a little bit skeptical when the CBC, from a lofty position, because the truth of the matter is when I was shopping around the Gameshi store, and the mm-hmm. star at one point dropped it, and I took it to Vice, mm-hmm. they don't say... We're not going to run this because we're afraid of getting sued. No editor ever says that to you. No, I think that's a fair statement. Okay, they say things to you like, well, this isn't reported to the extent that we would demand, or we think that you got a little too close to this, or, you know, we, we do things differently than the way you're doing them. That's the kind of thing you hear all the time from a news organization that would just rather not mm-hmm. because it's too risky a story. So that's when I say that I'm worried about the precedent here. That's the precedent that I'm worried about. You know, I, I certainly follow that thinking, but... But I think that this will be a one-off. I think that it's extraordinary that you have a reporter suing uh, the subject of her story, as I've said. And there are unlikely to be more judgments quite like this one unless that happens. I half agree with you. It's going to be a one-off. And the first thing I said when I saw this ruling, I said, well, I'm never suing anybody for libel. (laughs) Right? Like, as a journalist, if I report something about somebody and they come after me, I'm going to fight it out in the press because it's, this did not go well for Laura Robinson. Right. But I'll tell you where I do think this is going to – somebody's going to get accused again in the press of doing horrible things. Mm-hmm. That's going to happen again. And when they're talking to Navigator or whoever else about what to do, first of all, we know these days you don't go after your accuser because it doesn't look good if Cosby starts calling all these women liars. Mm-hmm. You go after the journalist. I think that's going to happen directly as a result of this. It's already part of the playbook that people attack the journalist and say, oh, the journalist is biased or the, the journalist has a vendetta. That is not extraordinary by itself. But you really look at the situation and you ask yourself, if everyone had dropped all of the litigation, uh, what would Laura Robinson's position have been? And I'm not sure that anyone would say, well, we're not going to hire Laura Robinson as a journalist. Uh, because John Furlong has said these things. I mean, John Furlong was pretty upset when he said those things. Laura Robinson was pretty much abandoned by the mainstream press in this country following John Furlong's libel case against her. Her career as an investigator dried up, and if you look at the way she was even written about in the National Post and other papers, other journalists did not even for their own self-interest in, in the, you know, their own interest in being able to report similar stories in the future, we, we saw, a, you know, a direct effect on her as a commodity in, in the industry. Uh, why she went this route is no mystery to me. I also think that perhaps she was eager to see some of these claims before a court by any, you know, a lot of the time, like the Cosby case, it's like, well, what recourse is there? In other words, how do you test the truth of whether or not this abuse happened? Is that one of the strands? I mean, I guess... 
the, the thing that's important to say in all of this is John Furlong wasn't saying none of these people suffered abuse. He was saying I wasn't involved in the abuse. He called them lies when eight people said John Furlong right. did this to me. He said those are lies. Right. And everybody's got to think about that as well. There are eight individuals who signed sworn affidavits and mm-hmm. 45 total individuals who say they witnessed John Furlong committing abuse. So what of those people and the extent to which their voices have been? I mean, they wouldn't even take their words into evidence in this case. Well, but the problem is that there was a forum to test whether this had happened, right? And the forum was in the individual civil suits brought against uh, Mr. Furlong. But for one reason or another, those were all abandoned. Yeah. Right. And in in one instance, abandoned, I think, with uh, some adverse finding by the court about, about what one of the complainants had said. But the uh, Truth and Reconciliation process has a forum in which these kinds of allegations can be tested. It's a Not con- this one, because this wasn't a residential school. This was a uh, missionary a day, school. It was a day school. school. That's right. So those people didn't get any of the benefits right. from that. And it's, it's, it's accepted that there was uh, rampant abuse at right. these missionary schools. Right. But I mean, what I'm saying is that we have, we have different forms and, and different ways to test some of these. This, in a way, may have fallen uh, between the cracks. But, you know, you can't just say, because 45 people have identified uh, Mr. Furlong, if in fact that's the case, the, the judgment doesn't really reflect that. No, it wasn't accepted as evidence. Not accepted. Uh, you can't say because there are eight sworn affidavits that that in fact happened. No, I mean there would there no, would have to be, I mean there would have to be a process to test that. Yeah, and and I think Mr. Furlong's entitled to say, you know what, I've I've heard these allegations now for years. Uh, I was prepared to defend every single person who came forward and made these allegations against me. And not a single one of them has amounted to anything. And by the way, the most serious allegation that was made against me, the RCMP investigated and found absolutely no basis for believing it was true, which is what the RCMP testified to at his trial. Mm -hmm. I would point out that you're talking about a community of people who we know suffered abuse in their childhood. There's a, a incredibly high levels of substance abuse and, and trauma. Sure, they're, they're vulnerable communities. They're vulnerable no, vulnerable no community question about that. That the courts, you know, some, you know, that some people didn't show up for their hearings uh, doesn't shock me. That Beverly Abraham felt that the stress of this all was too much for her to go forward with her sexual abuse claim does not mean to me that uh, he's innocent. It doesn't mean that he's guilty either. This is why journalism plays such a big role in these types of cases is because it's, these are cases where the official paths of finding out whether something happened or not don't tend to serve vulnerable people. Well, but it can't be that John Furlong's guilt or innocence is determined by the Georgia straight. I mean, we have we have processes in the country for testing these kinds of allegations in the civil courts. I think it's true that, that, that it turns out that in, in cases of historical abuse like this, they're not the best processes, which is why the whole truth and reconciliation structure was set up. Yeah. But if you're John Furlong, surely you're entitled to say, there is not a single stain on my character because no one has ever demonstrated before anybody that any of this happened. Furlong is absolutely entitled to defend himself in the court of public opinion. By this ruling, he's also entitled to say things that aren't true. That's true up to a point, but I would say the journalist is entitled to the same protection. But if he's so steadfast in his claims that Laura Robinson is just absolutely the instigator here who you know you got to fit you got you got to 
connect the dots of this theory. There's this crazy malicious woman. She's got a problem with male authority figures in sports. She's got a vendetta against me personally. And she has somehow gotten at least eight individuals in this community to lie, and that's his language, about me. Which everybody can determine whether they find that to be plausible or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that is his counter theory. That's the counter narrative is that this malicious woman got all these people to collude on this on this false story yeah, about him. Backed in up with case, significant expert evidence, though. He, he, he called an expert on— He called an expert memory. about tainted memory, which is a very controversial subject right. when it comes to um, abuse claims. And there's a lot of counter— Right. The, the judge accepted it. That's fine. So let's, let's, let's think about that counter narrative sure. and ask ourselves, why would he abandon his libel case against her? Well, because these things take a toll. They take a financial toll, and they're expensive. No question about that. But also, they, they take an emotional toll. Can I suggest another reason that might Well, have another reason, too, just to finish that part of the narrative. And does Laura Robinson have the means to pay like a half-million-dollar sum at the should, end of the day? Should because, he win? But that's should, not why you do that. That's not why you do that. You do that because you want— to be exonerated. You want your day in court where you have a, a judge say, Laura Robinson defamed you. I mean, there are, there, sure, that's, there, right? That's, that's why you take it through to the end. There are those cases, no question. Here's but, why you don't. Yeah. Here's another reason in addition to what you said. Let's imagine for a second that Laura Robinson has a lot more about John Furlong, many more abuse claims that were never published by the Georgia Strait, Things that never saw their way into print that maybe after his libel case and this became so controversial, nobody else would print. All of that could get entered into evidence and would have if it exists. And all of that would then, as a court document, as evidence, get published in the Globe and Mail, the CBC. That is why a lot of people don't pursue. And that's why, you know, the chill cases where journalists are are slapped with a a libel suit that is later dropped, that's usually one of the reasons why they're dropped. But I I want to be clear about this. I am not prepared to assume that there is this vast amount of evidence that would have been damaging to John Furlong. I don't know that, and frankly, I don't believe that. So in theory, is is something like that plausible? It might be, but there's there's no evidence to suggest that's the case here. Well, if, if, if we're told that 45 witnesses, only eight of which were included in the Georgia Strait article, then we can, we can assume that there might be a lot more to this. But what we, we can say, without uh, more hypothetical speculation on this particular case, is that that is a very common reason why people abandon libel suits. Uh, it is a reason, but usually you don't commence a libel suit if that's the situation. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is your Canada Land episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com and the crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. The next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.